Hello, this is Property Matters, a weekly catch-up on all matters property supported by Fairview International Property Consultancy and auctionproperty.co.uk. We're live every Sunday from 10am on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn and our website propertymatterstv.co.uk. And if you're watching on the website, don't forget to leave us a Google review right there on the homepage. You can leave your comments if you're watching on social media underneath the uh, programme where you're watching now. Please do that. We'd love to see them. And if you'd like to email, it's hello at propertymatterstv.co.uk. Property Matters is also a podcast released on a Monday at 10am, uh, 24 hours after the live show. And of course, we'll also broadcast daily on Dilso Radio as well. And welcome our new listeners there too. So let's talk to Joe Joshi about this week's property news. And Joe, the big question this morning is how clean is clean enough at the end of a tenancy? This got to be one of the biggest bugbears between uh, tenants and landlords. Um, and it's usually the cleaning it is the biggest thing that, of course, uh, they, they fall out over. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about your experience of this? Yeah, it's quite a varied experience. Good morning and uh, hello to everybody listening. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, happy birthday, Paul, by the way. I know you're uh, Thank you. one, one, one year younger now. So, uh, <laughs> yes. yes, it's 22nd um, birthday. It's too much. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I know how you feel. Um, anyway... <laughs> So uh, cleaning, well, cleaning is, you know, a matter of opinion, I think. That's the only way I can say. I was just thinking about that before we started. And I thought, you know, if I said to my daughter, can you go and clean your room? And her version of cleaning her room and perhaps my version or, 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 or uh, my wife's version probably be um, a far cry. And that's probably where the problem lies when it comes to uh, cleanliness um, of any sort, in all honesty, and this is why there's a huge problem because there's no standard, is there? There's no real standard that you could say, okay, well, that's a standard of cleanliness. We, we live and, and sort of work, say, we should have it to this sort of level, but what is your level and my level are probably going to vary a lot, and that's really the hardest part. That's probably why there's always a bone of contention by uh, tenants and landlords uh, at the end of uh, a tenancy agreement of what they believe is clean um, and what they believe they should clean and also normally what they believe they had got when they first took the place on in the first place was it clean or clean enough in you know and so forth now really these are things that happens a little bit after the event that's where the problem really comes if they were all looking at it from day one then of course one would set a standard of that so-called expected cleanliness from day one. So if a tenant was moving in um, into a property um, and they decided that it wasn't clean enough for them to move in, theoretically, they probably should delay moving in until the landlord had got it cleaned up to the standard of their expectation. And also the landlord has then got an expectation of what it should look like when it comes back to them at the end of the tenancy agreement. But people are mostly in a rush to get in. They don't really think about it. Um, you know, they want to move in. They've got the, the van outside. They've got pressures to get to work. They've got to do all sorts of, just want to get in. Yeah, 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 this is fine. This is okay. And then the bone of contention comes at the end of when they leave. You know, that's when they should have probably done something at the beginning. And actually now there's this sort of, gap isn't there like what is clean and who should do it and why should it be and what should that expectation be 
Um, and that's why it's the biggest bone of contention in any argument at the end of a tenancy. Yeah, it's a legal requirement these days, isn't it, for landlords to uh, register their deposits and some of them can leave them with an organisation such as the Tenancy Deposit Scheme, who've written this article to um, sort of give a, an example of how this might work. So they talk about cleaning and damage being the most common areas of dispute between tenants and landlords. Um, and cleaning was the most single contested issue last year, with the claim appearing in 50% of disputes submitted to the TDS. And with that in mind, they've brought a case uh, which is illustrated which I'll go through with you now so the claim is that for a full professional deep clean this is by the landlord at the end of the tenancy the landlord's evidence included the tenancy agreement condition reports from the start and the end of the tenancy and his invoice to support the claim so he's just basically saying I had to go and do another clean on top of your clean because it wasn't good enough the tenant disputed the claim and provided evidence in the form of a receipted invoice to show that they'd instructed and paid for professional cleaners at the end of the property tenancy to clean on the day that the tenants left the property so you think well fair enough immediately before they appointed checkout inspection time. Tenants also claimed that they were not given the opportunity to send their cleaners back to the property to remedy any emissions identified at the checkout inspection. And, and that's an interesting point, which I'll let you re respond to in a second. But it's interesting, isn't it, that they actually said, well, look, look, let, we'll get the company, we've paid them the money, let's get them to come and do it to the standard you do need. But that wasn't allowed, so I'll let you respond to that in a second. Property had been professionally cleaned at the start of the tenancy with some emissions remaining. The summary of the checkout report stated that the property was not cleaned with further detail containing uh, contained within the checkout report, which confirmed that several cleaning oversights were present, including appliances and sanitary ware. So uh, an interesting piece, and they talk about uh, the uh, adjudication. I suppose I better mention that while we're, while we're talking about this. The adjudicator, although persuaded that an award was justified, did not make an award of the full amount claimed Checkout report confirmed that parts of the property were left as check-in and it also noted that some other areas required only relatively minor or finished cleaning. The invoice provided the support to support the claim included carpet cleaning, interestingly, where there were no carpets in the property. In the circumstances, the claim for full professional re-cleaning throughout was not justified for the issues for which the tenants were responsible in taking account of the emissions present at check-in. The landlords were awarded a con contribution towards the claim amount only. So that's interesting. What are your thoughts on that? Well, let's just go back to the first point, the point of, of them being allowed back in to uh, rem uh, remedy what was supposed to have been done by a professional deep, deep clean company. And there, there lies the first, first problem, really, isn't it? So you hire a cleaning company who are supposedly a reputable cleaning company who know how to do a deep clean but have obviously omitted to deep clean it well enough for a landlord to then dispute the fact that this is not um, clean enough. Now, right at the beginning I said it's about a matter of opinion of what you believe is clean and what the landlord thinks was clean as opposed to what the tenant and here now the third party is the cleaning company who believe that they've cleaned it well but clearly they hadn't cleaned it well and the tenant wanted to go get them to go back and re-clean it. Um, the landlord obviously has the right to say, well, you've had your chance to have it cleaned. It hasn't been done. And, you know, I'm now going to employ another cleaning company to go in there and do it. Now, this is where the business and the industry gets itself a bad name. People give it, it's always like one or two people 
that actually give the rest of the industry a bad name. And that is that, you know, people start to charge for cleaning um, a property which was perhaps cleaned, which he perhaps should have allowed the tenants, cleaners to go back and finish up, but obviously felt that this was a way that he could make a little bit more money from that. Not enough, but enough to make him feel comfortable. But secondly, uh, and most importantly, um, the, the sad thing is that when you read onto that particular article, that they then have charged for cleaning carpets, which then makes the entire mockery of the whole thing about cleaning, because there was no carpets to clean. So the question now really becomes, who do you trust? Do you trust the tenant to have cleaned it in the first place and provided the so-called invoice? Or do you believe the landlord to have provided another <coughs> company to clean and provide an invoice which now says that they cleaned carpets. So actually, uh, you know, the adjudicator in this situation has got themselves their work cut out because, you know, now maybe the adjudicator probably should have said, we shall actually charge for another company to go and clean it and clean it to the level that the adjudicator actually believes it should be because that's why an adjudicator sits there to actually turn around and say that is what they believe is clean. So, you know, it's quite amazing, really, that what cleaning could actually uh, interpretive as uh, and, and, and what that opinion could be. But the reason why people have to put their deposits into these particular government schemes or any uh, insured uh, schemes is so that there is a callback, a, a, a fallback to somebody to turn around and say, that's not fair. Back in the earlier days of lettings, it was held by um, you know the agent or, or perhaps by the landlord and then they, they just wouldn't give the deposit back um, and so forth but the situation now is that that has to you know that is not the case it has to be with a with a, an organization and an adjudicator has to be appointed but in this particular discussion I think the point of cleaning is a very interesting point there are other things that you could argue about let's say for example the door handle was broken and it was on the door when they took it in. Well, of course, that's clear that there was a door handle on the door when they took the property on, and now there is not a door handle, so that door handle has to be replaced. That's kind of black and white, that's clear. But what is cleaning is not clear, and what is a standard of cleaning is not clear. And it's interesting, really, that you bring this up. It might be a point where the adjudicator, i.e. the company that holds the deposit, should turn around and say, well, everything else is okay, but we will actually instruct our deep cleaning company to deal with it because we can reduce the number of complaints from the higher percentage that we have to deal with by simply saying, we'll deal with it, and then we know what that standard is. Mm. And then both sides are, are signed up to it. It's interesting, it says um, in the notes that they say that, that come off the back of this case that whilst a tenant cannot be required in a tenancy obligation to pay as a matter of course for a third-party contractor fee, for example, 
for a professional clean, it remains that a landlord is entitled to require a tenant to return a property to the end of a tenancy to the same standard of cleanliness as it was at the start. So I guess what they're saying there is that if the landlord chooses to have a professional deep clean when you move in, then it's obligated on you really to have a similar standard on the way out. To, and you know they're not necessarily required to do a third party clean. Uh, sorry, to do a third party clean. But if they chose to do it themselves to save a few bob, they're probably not going to be able to do it to the standard that they would require and end up having to pay anyway. And that's the problem, isn't it? Is what is that standard and what is that that limit? I mean, you know, I would say that if I was cleaning that my standard would be, you know, far superior than a company that would come in and do a deep clean. The difference is that the owner of the company probably has that philosophy. He probably, he or she probably has the philosophy of making sure that it is absolutely finger licking clean. However, the employee that they employ to go around there and clean it may have actually had more fag breaks than actually a rag break. So the, the reality is that <laughs> that, you know, did they ever do that clean? And they've gone back and said, I've done it. I put my four hours in there, done the house. Thank you very much. And that owner of that company has then not gone there to inspect. So it's almost like, I suppose, having the dog and barking yourself situation. You know, do you really have to go back there and check everything that somebody does? You want to trust someone. But here is a prime example of what has happened here. And I think that's exactly what's happened. A company has sent somebody along who's probably not done the job to the level that they have wanted to or should have done. The tenant has paid because they believe they weren't there. They probably sent the company in, they moved out. They probably sent the company in to do it and then tell the landlord that the agent's got the key and they've cleaned. But they actually never went back to check if that cleanliness was to the standard in the first place. So we rely in the business on other people's integrity, honesty, and level of cleanliness in this situation. Um, and that's what gets everybody into hot water because people just don't do it. So they think if I can get away with it, I can mop the floor and, and it looks wet. It looks as if I've actually you know, mopped the floor, but it probably was a bucket of water that was just chucked on there and, and that was the end of that. So you, you just don't know really how somebody has dealt with it. And uh, and this will be a continuing argument forever. I mean, to have a, um, uh, what do they call it? Um, an inventory, that's the word I was looking for, an inventory done at the outset with photographic evidence of what that place looked like and so forth could be at the wrong time. I mean, I've known of inventories that have been done some months back and people have used the same inventory and the same photographs again, um, maybe a year later, because they don't want to pay for an inventory clerk to go out and pay for another inventory. So what they do is they say, this is, this is the copy that I've got for the last inventory I had done. How do you know when it was done? Mm. Um, and who did it and when were those photographs taken unless they got time and date on the photographs so it's it's a real you know dilemma as to what is right and what is wrong and so long may the judicators sit because they'll be sitting for many years to come arguing about exactly you know all these points time and time again 
They do make the point that the standard of professional cleanliness does vary. This is the TDS. Um, and the checkout report, of course, is of great evidential value and much more use than just an invoice when assessing the extent of the tenant's liability for additional cleaning at the end of the tenancy. And that's really why that they they ruled in terms of the or in favour of the the landlord because he had the original documentation and evidence as you say and then was able to contrast and compare even though the invoice at the end was slightly dodgy with the carpet cleaning on it when there were none but all the um, uh, tenant was able to, to to show was an invoice to say that they had a clean done and as you say hadn't gone back in to check that that was done properly. And then, of course, the landlord is entitled, once the tenancy is over, not to let them back in again and chose not to, although he does have that at his discretion. And um, one's surprised to see that he wasn't allowed to, or perhaps there was an opportunity there to, to add an additional invoice in, maybe. Who knows? But uh, they, you would have thought that he would have given them the opportunity to go and finish the job. The problem there is, Paul, that I don't think in this particular case, and obviously one is second-guessing the situation here, that a cleaning company probably went in anyway. So, um, you know, a, a invoice has been produced and the landlord may have gone in there and said, there's no way this has been done and there's no way I'm letting them back in because, you know, what they should have done is done it in the first place properly and maybe they haven't done and they've got a mate or someone down the road to say, you know, because, you know, cleaning companies are sometimes just single persons employed, self-employed by themselves. And um, they, they could have quite easily got someone to probably put an invoice together and say they did it. Actually, they never actually did do it. So, and that's maybe why he's chosen not to let them go back in. Any reasonable landlord under normal circumstances would feel it fair that they should allow to go back and clear clear it or, or make it better. But in this case, it may have been that there was never a cleaning done in the first place and just an invoice produced. But that's the situation that creates a bad problem for everybody else because now stories like this are the ones that, you know, people get gauged and judged by and they'll think, well, actually, did they really do it? Was it such and such? Comment, comments like mine will probably say, well, I wonder if that is the truth. So all of these things actually come to a, a question. But um, yes, I think it really boils down to, you know, what does one think is clean? And while we're on the subject, I do recall a story not so long ago, Joe, it may have been a dishwasher or a washing machine, I can't remember. Let's just say it was a washing machine for argument's sake. But the situation where a washing machine had broken uh, during a tenancy and it, the, the, the tenant had the view that the machine was no longer serviceable or repairable. So took it upon himself to go and get a new machine, have it installed, and then, of course, at the end of the tenancy, sent an invoice for the machine to the landlord. And, of course, there was a big dispute about that, isn't it? So that's an interesting point as well, because obviously the landlord was hoping to go in and get it fixed for him and was quite happy to, 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 to pay to have it fixed, but didn't want to have a new machine. And, of course, that ended up being a dispute as well. Yes, and that is, I mean, we've discussed this many times, not in just this, this particular subject, but any subject, it's about communication. Had that tenant written to the landlord or sent him an email or a WhatsApp or whatever, smoke signals, whatever they call it, do nowadays, to say, by the way, the washing machine has packed in, the landlord would then have said, okay, I can either get it repaired, get it checked out, I've got a contract with some company that comes out and looks at these things or whatever, if they're a seasoned landlord, sometimes they have 
contractual agreements with with washing machine and you know um plumbers and all sorts of other people that come in and sort of just say okay it's part of the part of the cover i'll go there and have a look at it and it might be just one rubber seal or some something minor on the other hand it could be that yes it's come defunct but that would have given the tenant a clear indication of what was wrong with that particular machine at that time had he made contact so the landlord was obviously right in their situation that at the end of it when he turned around and said here is an invoice for a washing machine he says what washing machine because i gave you a washing machine and you never told me that there was something wrong with it so how do i know that this has got to do with my washing machine it could be something else that you want to charge me for so communication is is very much the important thing and it is lost because they've had an argument somewhere in their journey already landlord and tenant the tenant may probably feel that he doesn't want to speak to the landlord anymore and the landlord is probably saying well i'm looking for an excuse to give you notice so you can leave because i don't like you either so you know um between the two of them they just want to sort of try and avoid but at the last minute you know rather than leave peacefully and think thank god i'm, I'm out of here decides to stick a little spanner in the works by saying well there's an invoice for a washing machine and that then is blown up into some arbitration and of course uh, the good old adjudicator has to come in and decide whether to give the washing machine or not i did take a look at the tenancy deposit scheme website by the way and i just thought it'd be handy to uh, just share a page of the the whole load of key documents 40 of them on the website here i mean there are other schemes available just to be fair or at least but i thought as we focused on their story you might as well give them a bit of a plug but all kinds of things about guide to pest infestations and having pets within the property spring cleaning guide energy efficient for rented homes uh, autumn maintenance for landlords the guide to student lets quite a lot of good resource there so if you're a landlord watching and you uh, would like to have a read of some of those things in the tenancy deposit scheme website would look like a good place to go give them a little bit of a plug for them there and uh, moving on staying in the same area which of course is buy to let at the moment over the past year three quarters that's 76 percent joe of private landlords said that they'd raise the rent with the main reason cited by half of them, 51% uh, of being higher mortgage costs. Quarter of landlords surveyed by Landbay, 24% said they raised rents on the advice of their letting agent. Uh, other reasons for rent hikes were to cover maintenance and repairs, an increase in taxation or energy bills, while some landlords always raise rents once a year. Most likely rent increase, according to 38% of respondents, is between 6 and 10%, while... 27% said they would only increase the rent by up to 5%. I have to say, if you're uh, unlucky enough to be in a tenancy, you know, on say a thousand pounds a month, and then you're going to get a 10% whack on that, that's a nasty extra hundred to find, isn't it? It is, and unfortunately, they're finding not just a nasty extra hundred, they're finding a nasty extra lots of hundreds at this moment in time. And primarily that is, uh, and, and, and the report is correct in saying, that the largest percentage of them are increased because of the uh, mortgage interest rate that has uh, been increasing uh, dramatically over the last six months, year now, uh, September last year to almost September, almost a year, has been, you know, I think uh, 13 or 14 consecutive increases, and that is now taking it to 5.5 uh, with 6% um, with looming around the corner. And the 
announcement was this this week that the 6.6 minimum fixed for the next five years is the lowest that is available in the marketplace. So, you know, um, interest rates, and that's just an ordinary purchase. So buy to let would have been probably much higher than that. Um, and with that in mind, there's every reason why landlords are having to increase the rent, um, especially new landlords, perhaps the landlords that became landlords in the last five or six years who may have now come out of a fixed rate opportunity and now are on a variable rate and now hitting a much higher and therefore their mortgage has gone up rocketing high and they've got to get that paid from somewhere or ask the tenant to vacate because at the moment there is many tenants waiting for vacant properties. So in the minute somebody goes, they find another one fairly quickly at probably double the money. And that is not, you know, a lie because basically we've seen it ourselves. I mean, I'm, I'm shocked, you know, sometimes uh, recently when people say I'm actually paying X for the rent and it's almost double what it might have been 18 months, a year ago. Uh, it's just shot up because, and then of course there's a supply and demand. The demand for letting is huge and the demand, uh, the supply has become scarce very scarce um and i'm sure that'll be a, a point we'll cover in a minute indeed two out of ten landlords um uh 18 said they would not raise rents for their tenants if their own mortgage rate increases when they came to remortgage two out of ten said that they were unsure what they were going to do and 61 61 said they would raise the rent according to this new research those landlords who are not raising rents at the moment they do not need to as their rental income covers their mortgage lucky uh, uh, or their other and their other outgoings however some said they are out of pocket but will take the hit because they do not want to lose a good tenant meanwhile others are delaying the rental increase for as long as they can and there is something in that isn't that because actually if you've got a good tenant uh, very often better to be you know get still have an asset that's going to be worth something in the long run especially if you own it for a long while even though prices are dropping a little bit at the moment you're still on an appreciating asset as such um and to take a hit of a few hundred pounds a month you know compared to your mortgage but you've got a nice reliable tenant that you know is going to not leave you any void, void periods and things it it might actually work out for them that way yes and so old um landlords not in age but in time who've bought perhaps many, many years ago or had inherited a property that was in the family or in a portfolio that has low or no mortgage on that property can afford to be perhaps uh, kind-hearted in a situation where they think, well, I'd rather keep my tenant better the mm. devil you know than pragmatic. the one you don't. Be pragmatic and say, I'll stay with them. But the new landlords, the landlords that have emerged in the last five six, ten years, are landlords that have had a higher borrowing at a time when the rate was much cheaper and so subsequently they had a margin between what they would rent it for and what the mortgage would be. That margin has now come to a point where the borrowing is costing more than what the rent is being paid. So subsequently they're having to ask them to increase the rent or vacate the property and then perhaps rent it to somebody else. I mean, it's astonishing to think that some of the councils have, have got such a demand for property that they are paying, you know, silly money over and above per day per person 
um, in order to do that. Now, if somebody took that opportunity on, which they, um, a lot of landlords are doing, you know, they're making more money in a month. They would do perhaps in a year sometimes uh, out of these things. Um, and um, so, you know, you can't blame them, but that is the problem that the situation has been created by the current um, government through and through the Bank of England by raising the rates at the levels that they are and actually almost ma making sure that the landlords are exiting. So they're the younger, the modern landlords that are exiting, not the older ones, not somebody who's been in it for 30 years and has no mortgage on it. It's someone who's been there for the last five to 10 years that has maybe got 75, 80% borrowing. And that 75, 80% borrowing has now come to a point where it's like 100% borrowing because you know, you're not getting enough rental income to cover the amount that you're paying out. Yes, great to be a cash buying landlord at the moment, for sure. Um, and uh, the other suggestion here is that actually we're not uh, going to be, we haven't seen the end of this yet because there's still many, many landlords who have got remortgaging to do in this next 12 months or so, as we've highlighted here, both in terms of buy-to-let and also in, in, in homeowners who have their own mortgages, of course. There's a lot of people still yet to remortgage. So, um, they may not have got their higher rate yet, but of course that's the pain that they're going to have to pass on potentially to their tenant down the lane. So uh, let's just uh, keep an eye on that story and then move on to our final story because I wanted to get the, to, to this one last week, but uh, we didn't get time as it turned out. We've got a little bit of time to discuss this one today. This is quite an interesting one. Homeowners who sell a property with Japanese knotweed, which we have talked about before, and fail to declare it to the buyer could potentially now face legal action, according to new research by invasive plant specialists in Vironet. A YouGov survey of over 2,000 people showed that almost two-thirds, 63%, would sue the seller if a property they bought was later discovered to have had Japanese knotweed that had not been declared as part of the purchase process. Uh, the, the sellers are legally obliged to carry out proper checks before stating to the Law Society on the Law Society's TH6 form, uh, which is completed as part of the conveyancing process, whether the property is affected by knotweed, including uh, rhizome, uh, uh, which is um, present in the ground of the property or within three metres of the boundary, even if there are no visible signs of above ground growth. Legal cases experts can usually determine approximately how long knotweed has been present in the ground and whether attempts have been made to treat it in the past, making it difficult for sellers to claim ignorance. Despite the risks, more than half, 53% of sellers would carry out insufficient checks, for example, having a quick glance around the garden, 21% would do that, or doing nothing at all nothing at all, and ignoring it, 14%. Even if sellers are familiar with the plant, the appearance of which varies significantly through the year, uh, without digging up the ground, it's difficult to say for certain whether knotweed is present, including dormant rhizome that uh, could suddenly begin to grow if disturbed. So that's quite interesting. 53% wouldn't be too bothered about it because there's a five percent chance that you've got it in your garden so we'll just take that risk which sounds dangerous yes so this is an interesting subject and thank you for bringing it forward i mean first of all not weed is not something that is um identifiable identifiable to the average person in their garden they you're not you're not gardeners you're not into leaves you're not into trees branches and all that horticultural kind of stuff 
You don't spend your Sunday afternoon at the garden centre wondering about which plant's going to do what. You just don't really care because it's just in the garden. Um, and so, therefore, the chances are of somebody actually spotting it and thinking, oh, well, that's not weed. I must do something about it is probably 1% out of 100 um, in, in, in reality. However, it has uh, been a commonplace perhaps more recently. And the, the, the thing with knotweed is that um, it's amazing. It actually grows literally through concrete. Um, so even with the best will in the world, if you decide that, you know, you spotted it and you've decided to, you know, dig a big hole and put concrete all over it and hoping that it doesn't, at some stage or another, if it can go through concrete, the chances are it's going to go elsewhere. It's going to find its way. It's a bit like water. You know, water will find mm. any place it can find its way through and not weed will do the same. Um, and so structurally it causes a problem and, and can cause um, lots of issues. Now, if it's in the garden, one would look at it and think, oh, well, that's just that's pretty, isn't it? It's just a green bush. Um, but that green bush is creating structural issues within your garden and perhaps leading it towards a house and creating structural problems. And that's where it, it becomes a real issue. I personally feel that um, the answer to most of that is that when a valuer is instructed to do a valuation on behalf of a lender for argument's sake, or perhaps an individual chooses to have a um, structural survey done on the property that they're gonna buy for their own benefit, these things should be checked and identified at that time by the surveyors so that the appropriate action can be taken, i.e. for you know, the appropriate insurance can be taken out, the appropriate cover for perhaps it arriving later on in life should be taken out. It isn't there and that's why it is now left open for abuse in some cases. And in some cases it's genuine that, you know, not we did turn up and you didn't know what it was about. So a large number, if you spot, stop 10 people on the street or, or, or stick them in the garden at knotweed and ask them to go and identify it, you might find, you know, two of them that probably will. The rest probably won't find it because they don't know what it looks like. So it, it is a real uh, bone of contention in terms of, you know, what's right and what's wrong. But the reality is, yes, there are now um, sellers being sued for um, damages on property for not declaring knotweed. Part of it is because they probably don't know it. Part of it is because if they did know it, they hope it's going to go away and no one's going to see it. And part of it is that they did see it and they've decided to cover it. And it's actually emerged that later on it's there. So sooner or later it's going to, you know, rear its ugly head as knotweed does. Um, and, and therefore it's going to be so the question really is how do you mitigate that how do you protect yourself in terms of the cost that you could end up paying you know is it something that is covered in your um, buildings insurance or your household policy or, or whatever that particular policy would be and and maybe that's the that's the way to protect it and okay it's more money for insurance companies who never like to pay out when they can do it but the reality is that at least it gives you some protection or even from a legal point of view there is some cover in the legal part of it to say that if such things did happen that your buildings insurance has the adequate legal cover for them to challenge this and make that compensation if it was found 
but yes, it is it is a, a little problem that is looming, I suppose, all the time. We just don't know it. And the reason why most people actually ignore it is because most people don't know what it looks like. For anyone thinking that is either watching or listening now, thinking it's all a bit of a fuss about nothing, well, let me just tell you, the homeowner earlier this year in Rains Park in London uh, found Japanese knotweed behind the garden shed after he moved into his £700,000 property and successfully sued the seller for no, no less than £200,000 in costs and damages. The seller had answered no to the knotweed question on the TA6 form and claimed in court that he wasn't aware of the knotweed infestation and reasonably believed he was telling the truth when he did so but the judge determined that he made a misrepresentation and was responsible for the diminution in the property's value and legal fees and so it is uh, the seller's duty to disclose it as we've said and any false information if given to the even if given to the best of your knowledge could lead to a misrepresentation claim um, and what's interesting is that on the ta6 if you just put on there not known that then does pass the responsibility to the buyer to accept the risk and either get a report done or not. Now, only 32% of buyers said that they would pay for the survey themselves, which is interesting. And there's, and, there's, and there's every reason to understand why they wouldn't bother, because even if they don't bother, they still can then sue when they find it later. So it seems to be all stacked on the side of the seller. Yes, so uh, you're absolutely right. If you actually put in there not known, it clarifies you to say that you've actually declared that you don't know nothing about it. It's when you've actually said no, um, you are then categorically saying that you know the fact that there is no knotweed and therefore knowingly you have declared that there isn't any and then somebody finds it and that no becomes a yes but a not known tells them that you just don't know nothing about it. So that kind of gives you not necessarily a pass out, but it certainly makes it difficult for a judge to be black or white about the, the situation. Um, and that is going to be an ongoing thing. Yes, I think also it is stacked in the favour of the buyer, actually, rather than the seller, because the seller, if they say no, is stuck. They're, they're done for. The buyer can choose to have a survey done and it could be declared in that survey that there was, but he doesn't have to share that with the seller and could actually go back to the seller after completion and say, actually, um, I'm now going to sue you for not declaring the knotweed, even though I actually did know it was there when I bought it because I had the survey to say it was there. But I've chosen not to tell you that because I'm going to do you for a quarter of a million pound which actually, if I bought a £700,000 house, I've just reduced it by a quarter of a million pounds because you've had to pay me back £250,000, give or take, with costs. And therefore, it's quite cunning on the buyer's part to be able to have a reduction on a property through that system. So I suppose our advice will here would be that, you know, take heed, have it checked, and if necessary, make sure that you're insured for the future of, of such such questions and such situations. Yeah, I guess it's the, the learn there is don't put no if you're not sure, put not known, and at least you're not going to be sued at that point. You may well still find there is not weed, in which case you have to reduce your price, but at least you're not going to be paying legal fees and everything else as a part of it. I guess there is an opportunity there if you've put not known for you and the buyer to then decide to halve the fee to have it checked. 
and then any well, re 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 remediation. It's an opportunity to negotiate, but if you put no, you mm. close the door. Yeah, that's the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Joe, that's uh, all we've got time for this week. So uh, thank you very much indeed, as always, for your wisdom. We'll see you again next time for another Property Matters. Mm -hmm.